Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 4 to 21, and Romans chapter 9, verse 14 to 18. Do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land, whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out from before you, and that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob. Know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stubborn people. Remember and do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. From the day you came out of the land of Egypt until you came to this place, you have been rebellious against the Lord. Even at Horeb you provoked the Lord to wrath, and the Lord was so angry with you that he was ready to destroy you. When I went up to the mountain to receive the tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant that the Lord made with you, I remained on the mountain forty days and forty nights. I neither ate bread nor drank water. And the Lord gave me the two tablets of stone written with the finger of God, and on them were all the words that the Lord had spoken with you on the mountain, out of the midst of the fire, on the day of the assembly. And at the end of forty days and forty nights, the Lord gave me the two tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant. Then the Lord said to me, Arise, go down quickly from here, for your people whom you have brought from Egypt have acted corruptly. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made themselves a metal image. Furthermore, the Lord said to me, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stubborn people. Let me alone, that I may destroy them and blot out their name from under heaven. And I will make of you a nation mightier and greater than they. So I turned and came down from the mountain, and the mountain was burning with fire, and the two tablets of the covenant were in my two hands. And I looked, and behold, you had sinned against the Lord your God. You had made yourselves a golden calf. You had turned aside quickly from the way that the Lord had commanded you. So I took hold of the two tablets and threw them out of my two hands and broke them before your eyes. Then I lay prostrate before the Lord as before, forty days and forty nights. I neither ate bread nor drank water because of all the sin that you had committed in doing what was evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. But I was afraid of the anger and hot displeasure that the Lord bore against you so that he was ready to destroy you. But the Lord listened to me that time also and the Lord was so angry with Aaron that he was ready to destroy him. And I prayed for Aaron that also at the same time then I took the sinful thing, the calf you, that you had made, and burned it with fire and crushed it, grinding it very small until it was as fine as dust. And I threw the dust out of it into the brook that ran down from the mountain. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show you my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. 
I've tried on the service sheet, on the back of it, uh, if you can see, uh, to lay out the logic of Paul's argument in these uh, verses, verse 14 to 18. And we're going to follow that on our way through. Now, just to say, uh, this isn't the easiest passage. It's hard to get our heads around, but perhaps more pointedly, it's hard to get our hearts around. So let's pray as we look at it together. The Lord says this in Isaiah 66, verse 2. All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Lord God, this passage contains deep and awesome truths. And so we humble ourselves before you, recognising that you are God and we are not, and that these are your very words to us. Help us to receive them both with joy and with trembling, we pray. Amen. So we begin with a question, which I've paraphrased on the, on the service sheet like this. Is God unrighteous for electing some to salvation and not others before they have done anything good or bad? Let me say that again. Is God unrighteous for electing some to salvation and not others before they've done anything good or bad. Is God unrighteous? That's the question in view in this part of Romans, verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? The word injustice there is actually the word that's been translated unrighteous in the rest of the letter. Has God acted wrongly? Has he done something that's not good? Has he acted out of step with his character? Now that's a big question. It's a very bold question to ask of God. And so before we answer it, we need to see why this is being asked. So we need to go back a step. Chapter 8 in Romans made many great promises to us in Christ. There's now no condemnation for us in Jesus through his atoning work on the cross. We have the Holy Spirit living in us, sanctifying us. We are adopted into God's family. Nothing can ever separate us from God's love. In Christ, we have secured for us an eternal inheritance. Many great and wonderful promises. But that's raised an objection from some. How can we know that God will keep those promises? Because after all, didn't he make some of those promises to Israel too, back in the Old Testament? And isn't it obvious that many Jews, even most Jews, don't believe in Jesus? Did God then fail to keep his promises to them? And if so, how can we be sure that he'll keep these promises for us as well? Paul begins chapter 9 with this challenge in mind. But before he answers the challenge, just note this, he begins chapter 9 
by showing how grieved he is that his people, the Jews, have not on the whole trusted in Christ. That's what verse 1 to 5 is all about. Pay attention to that. Try and keep that in mind as we go through. For Paul, all of what he says in this chapter isn't mere theology. It's personal to him. His neighbours, his friends, his family even, his people, those whom he loves, are in his heart and mind as he writes this chapter. He's not detached and cold as he writes these things. He is in deep anguish for those who are hard-hearted towards Jesus. Just as we feel for those whom we love who have also rejected Christ. Keep that in mind. Now think back to last week. Roger preached from verses 1 to 13 for us. Paul was clear in verse 6 that God's promises have not been broken. It is not as though the word of God has failed. And here's the headline reason for his explanation. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Paul says God has kept his word because the promises that he made were never intended for all of ethnic Israel. But for a group within Israel that he chose or elected for salvation. Paul illustrates this with two examples. God chose Isaac, not Ishmael, to inherit his promises. And God chose Jacob, not Esau. And this is the remarkable statement that triggers the question of our passage in verse 10 and 11. Speaking of Jacob and Esau, not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children, Jacob and Esau, by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. That's what we saw last time. And do you see why that raises the question of God's righteousness in this unconditional election? Now, doubtless, Paul would have taught this truth a lot to various different people in various different places, and he knows the questions that people are going to ask. Is it right of God to choose in this way? Is God acting rightly to choose people for salvation like this before they've done anything good or bad? And the question might come, didn't he act differently in the past, basing his choice at least somewhat on how we will respond to him? If what Paul says here is true, isn't there an injustice or an unrighteousness on God's part? That's the question in view in verse 14. And I'm sure it's a question that we ask Two, why is one person saved and not another? Or what's the answer? Is God unrighteous? By no means, says Paul. And we're going to see now on what basis Paul can defend God's righteousness in this election of some and not others. There was once a woman who was sitting for her portrait to be painted. And she says to the painter, oh, I hope you do me justice. To which the painter replies, 
My dear, it is not justice one needs, but mercy. Paul's answer is this. God is not unrighteous, for it is by sheer mercy that anyone is saved. To put it another way, if it were not for God's mercy in unconditional election, we wouldn't have a hope in hell. Verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there any injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, our works, but on God who has mercy. Now Paul picks Moses as his example here. Why does he choose that example? It's the example that we had read to us when Moses preaches later on in Deuteronomy, referring back to it in Israel's history. It refers to the incident in the Old Testament which is the greatest display of mercy towards God's people. The quote comes from Exodus chapter 33. In the story, God has just performed the great act of salvation. He's rescued his people from slavery in Egypt and is bringing them to the promised land. God calls Moses up onto the mountain to speak with him of all the good things that he's going to do for Israel to give Moses his law, the Ten Commandments. But meanwhile, as we heard, down at the foot of the mountain, the Israelites have convinced Aaron that it would be a really great idea to build a golden calf to worship. Can you imagine the affront that that is to God? He's just rescued them in the most amazing way, and here they are, building and worshipping an idol and so quickly. Now God is well within his rights to get rid of them at that point, and his wrath rightly burns against them, but Moses pleads on their behalf, and God relents. He shows mercy. They deserve wrath, but they get mercy. And Moses is amazed by this, and of course greatly relieved. And he wants to understand more of the character of this God whom he serves. So in the next episode, he asks God to reveal himself to him. He asks to see God's true glory. Exodus chapter 33, verse 18. Moses said, please show me your glory. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. God reveals his glory to Moses, and his glory is his goodness, his righteousness, his character which is summed up in his name, the Lord, or I am who I am. And then in Exodus 19, 
as God says his name, the Lord, he then explains in the sentence after what his name is. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. I am who I am. Here is how this illustrates Paul's point. Did God save the people of Israel because they chose him first? No. Did God save them because they would respond in faith to him after? No, they turned to idols straight after he saves them. Moses is really clear on this when we get into Deuteronomy, that passage we had read to us early on by Daniela. He repeatedly says, it was not because of your righteousness that God chose you. It wasn't because they were lovely. It wasn't because they were righteous. It wasn't even because they had faith in him. Why did he choose them as his people? It was for his own name's sake, for his glory. It was so he may be seen as he really is, the God of mercy and compassion. Now, some people throughout history have tried to explain this doctrine of election, this choosing of God, uh, like this. That, that what happens is, is God looks down through the lens of history into the future and he sees who will choose him. So, God chooses to save in eternity past those who will choose him in the future. And if you explain it like that, of course, no one's going to object to it. Everyone's going to say, yes, great, that sounds good to me. But that is not what God says about himself to Moses. God says, I am free to choose to save or not. I am not bound by human choices. See, the logic of this is, is this, that if God were bound to choose us because of our choice of him, even in the future, well, he would cease to be God because he'd then be beholden to us. If it depended on our choice, he'd be forced to act a certain way. And that would be God, God in his absolute sovereignty. He'd be less glorious because he would be limited by our decisions. Now, God chooses to show mercy not because of external factors like our decisions, but because of internal ones. His mercy is at the very core of his being. And when we discover that, that brings him all the glory. There's no glory to share with anyone else. And as well as that, if we think about it, if, if God were to look down through the tunnel of time and to save those who would choose him, how many people would he find? Zero. He'd find the grand total of zero human beings who would actually choose him. To use the language of Romans 3, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, 
No one seeks for God. For people who would never choose God in themselves, there are only two options. There is fully deserved wrath or utterly undeserved mercy. And so our salvation is all of mercy. Mercy which flows from the heart of God to undeserving human beings whom he freely chooses in his own sovereign will and in line with his character, his righteousness. Verse 16 has the conclusion, so then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God, who has mercy. Now the first part may have been hard for us to get our heads around. The second part, I think, is clearer but it's harder for us to get our hearts around. For if God is free in his sovereignty and chooses whom he saves, he must also choose whom he does not save. He chooses Isaac, not Ishmael. Jacob, not Esau. Is God righteous in this too? Well, verse 17 holds the answer to this extension of the question and our next step in the logic of this passage, verse 17. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. See, Paul again takes us back to the Exodus story, further back, in fact, than the previous incident, to the the encounter between Moses and Pharaoh in Exodus chapter 9. I'm sure the story is more familiar at this point. Pharaoh's enslaved God's people. He's refusing to let them go. And so God speaks to Pharaoh through Moses, and this is what he tells him that God is sovereign, he's the one in charge, that God could have destroyed Pharaoh instantly and Pharaoh would have fully deserved it. In fact, he could have destroyed all of Egypt many years before. He'd have the right to do so, but he does not. He says that instead, he has given Pharaoh his position. He has raised him up to his position of leadership. And even more than that, that God has hardened Pharaoh's heart so that he will not let the people go. Now God does this according to the story of Exodus before Pharaoh later hardens his own heart towards God. That's simply what it says. And Paul defends God's absolute right to do this. He has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. Listen, we find that difficult, don't we? But remember Paul's beginning to this chapter, thinking of the Jewish race, his friends and family and neighbours who have been hardened to the gospel too. 
he finds this difficult as well. But look at the reason God does it. He has a purpose. You see that there? He has a purpose in doing so. And his purpose is to show his power in Pharaoh, that his name might be proclaimed in all the earth. God's purpose in hardening Pharaoh's heart is that he might show his power. See, the plagues which follow this incident will confirm God's power over Pharaoh. It will confirm God's power over the gods of Egypt. It will confirm God's power over the creation in an absolute way. Even God's power over death will be displayed. And the effect of that is that God's name, that is his reputation, his character, his glory, his righteousness in judgment over evil, is proclaimed all over the earth. God hardens Pharaoh's heart in order to fulfill his sovereign will so that his power to save his people is known, not just in Egypt and not just to Israel, but throughout the earth. All the world has proclaimed to them the power of God to save his people because of the hardening of this one man's heart. By the time we get into the book of Joshua, uh, there's at least one Gentile woman called Rahab who has turned to God in faith because of his actions in Egypt. God can even harden someone's heart to extend mercy to many more and bring himself glory throughout the earth. The point here is this. God is free. He's not bound to act a certain way because of us and the choices we make. He's free to show mercy and he's free to harden as he sees fit. He's God. He can do as he pleases for he is righteous. He always does what is right according to his will. And though we may not understand it, and many times we do not understand it, and though we may struggle with it, we can always trust him for it. In the end, his purpose will come about, that he will be seen as who he is and glorified throughout the earth. Now we'll have further questions, I'm sure. Uh, Paul knows that, and next week he'll answer the question about whether it's fair that God acts in this way. He'll answer the question as to whether we can be really held responsible for our actions in the light of God's electing sovereignty. Those are big questions. I'd encourage you to discuss these things this week, but also to hang on until next Sunday evening for the answers. Let's just think as we close about what these truths do for us. Three things. It humbles us, it gives us hope, and it leads to praise. Humbles us, 
Why does it humble us? Well, it reinforces to our hearts that we have contributed absolutely nothing to our salvation. If you thought that you offered something to God, some good deed or good thought or good attitude that meant that God should give you some credit, should save you, well, you need to be humbled by what you see here. God has chosen you only because of his mercy. It's all of mercy. We are saved by Christ from first to last. Humbles us. Secondly, it gives us real hope, and that may surprise you, perhaps. Let me explain what I mean. This doctrine of his unconditional election means that you can never say, I'm too evil for God to save me. As if you've somehow passed the point of no return. And you can never look at someone else and say, well, that person, they'll never turn to God. They're too far gone. Because if God has set his heart in eternity past to show mercy on you or mercy on them, his purpose will never be thwarted. Nothing or no one can stop him in his electing purposes, not even the human will. In fact, God always saves us against our will. No one seeks him. He turns our will towards him in his mercy. I remember a Christian minister um, spoke once about uh, this doctrine. He was speaking about his children. He had five children, uh, adult children, and one of them had rejected the Christian faith. It caused them a lot of personal pain, obviously, and, and, um, and does for, for anyone. Now, he'd been asked whether his belief in election made him angry at God because of that. Now, that's not the most loving question to ask. Um, I would suggest you don't ask that question, but, but I, I'm glad that he was asked because his answer was this. Not at all. In fact, it is only this doctrine of election which gives me hope. If it were down to my child, they would never turn to Christ. But it's down to God and his mercy. So there is a chance. And I'm really praying for his mercy to come into their life. God's mercy is the only hope for rebellious sinners. So it gives us, it humbles us, first of all, it gives us hope for ourselves and for others. And then finally, it leads us to praise. John Piper writes this, There was not, and is not, nor ever will be a point where we become the decisive cause of our salvation. God has chosen us freely so that we may not boast in ourselves, but in God. God has chosen us freely so that we may not boast in ourselves, but in God. This doctrine leads to God being glorified in our hearts and then on our lips. It leads us to sing of his sovereign mercy towards us.
We can sing with real truthfulness what we sang earlier on in our first song this evening. Who am I, the lowliest of sinners, that you would pay the price my sin deserves, my maker scarred for those who marred his likeness, and from his wounds flows mercy unreserved. These truths lead us to praise. They lead us to a lower view of ourselves. They humble us, but they give us a bigger view of God. They lead ultimately to his glory as we declare with thankfulness the mercy that he has freely poured out upon us. Let's pray. Sovereign Lord, these are deep and uh, awesome truths. We tremble at your word. And Lord God, we, as we think of these things and as we talk about them together later on, and as we think of them uh, throughout the week, we ask that you would convict us of their truth, for it is your word, but also that you would give us an acceptance of your word that counts on your goodness that trusts you. Lord God, as we've been praying and thinking too about those whom we know and love who as yet have not turned to Christ, Lord God, would you have mercy upon them? Would you speak to them of your son and the love you have for them? And would you turn their hearts towards you in faith? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.